Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to Journalism in a Post-Truth World. Yes, it is I, Tim Graham, fresh back from a conference under that title going on downtown at the Museum of the Bible, thrown by EWTN News and Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, I was there to speak on a panel about bias in journalism. Uh, The moderator was Eric Rosales, who's a congressional correspondent for EWTN News. And Terry Mattingly was there with me from GetReligion.org. If you haven't gone to that website, you should. And then uh, Caroline Downey, education reporter at National Review, that I'm sure you've heard of. Yes, she had that moment where Caroline said, I'm 24, I'll defer to the old guys. Ouch! (laughs) It fits. So I will try to give you a summation of kind of what I'd like to say to uh, to the audience today. I started by talking about Newsbusters and how when we came up with that title back in 2005... I wasn't a big fan of it, one, because you sort of thought of Ray Parker Jr. Who are you going to call? Newsbusters! But uh, also, you don't really like the idea of busting on the news, you know. I think But the whole problem is, and the reason that it does fit, is that what these news networks do, what some of these newspapers do, deserves some busting. It deserves some objection and criticism and analysis. But we are pro-news at Newsbusters. We are pro-journalism. Many of us uh, majored or minored in journalism. I, I, did, I am one of those people that believed in minoring in journalism, majoring in political science. Although the people there on campus at Bemidji State thought I was in mass communications. That was the title they used for that program because I was always hanging around at the campus radio station. Uh, And I had an alternative student newspaper my junior year for the right-wingers. But I have a special place in my heart for the news business from my dad, who passed away about a year ago. He was not a news reporter. He was a news reader so at the breakfast table, be uh, crunching on the Cocoa Krispies, listening to Dad read the news. And at that time, it was probably Jerry Ford or Jimmy Carter news in my memory. Uh, but so, I mean, in that sense, the news has always been important. We feel that way in a, in a free society. Journalism plays an important role of holding the government accountable. The whole problem we have with the news business now is especially now under Biden, they're not holding the government accountable. They are presenting the administration perspective almost exclusively. The column today was about the Tuesday NBC Nightly News. I counted five sound bites from Biden and Biden administration personnel. Two, in fact, from State Department spokesman Ned Price in two different stories. But in that half hour... Not a single Republican soundbite. And of course, the most deserving story was this brief sort of minute-long story that Kristen Welker did about how the Biden administration, administration officials, 
We won't cite anybody by name. Says they're going to reverse the family detention policy, start detaining families. This is one of those things where you know the Biden people are going to end up doing something that looks kind of Trumpy. And, you know, they're just not going to allow either the Republicans or the so-called immigrant advocates on the left to have a fit and criticize it. So the problem is the news today often sounds more like advertising or messaging. It doesn't sound like news. It doesn't sound like it's there to have a debate and let two sides speak. So I talked about how there was bias by commission, and that is the uh, you know the things we see where people say really aggressively wrong things or or really loaded Democrat Party talking points, bias by commission. But I said the more important one, and especially when the Democrats are in power, is bias by omission. Now back in 1992, we quoted this in our book, "How to Identify Exposing Correct Liberal Media Bias." It's an old book. You could still probably find it. Uh, In 1992, CBS reporter Betsy Aaron said, the largest opinion is what we leave out. I always say, worry about what you're not seeing. When they leave whole areas uncovered, that's the danger. What's on the table we can discuss. What's left off the table is not discussed. Or it's discussed as... Get a load of that kooky right-wing conspiracy theorizing. Like, for example, the theory that the COVID virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Once dismissed as kooky right-wing conspiracy theorizing, and now two years plus into Biden, well, maybe there's something to that. Now, my big example of bias by omission in, in current time was the Merrick Garland hearing. The Attorney General appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee and was grilled by the Republican senators. There were some hot topics there. There was the whole idea of how the Justice Department is proceeding in prosecuting anyone who messes with abortion or an abortion clinic. But there's no interest in prosecuting anybody committing vandalism at a Catholic church, throwing Molotov cocktails at a pro-life group. Um, This is something that the news media haven't wanted to cover, and so why would they cover the Garland hearing when these topics were discussed where Mayor Garland was going to say something we might call breaking news? But it doesn't match their advertising. Yes, then there was the case of Mark Houck, if you're not familiar with that, once again... The SWAT team broke into his house because he had shoved, this was the story, he had shoved an abortion clinic escort. Those humanitarians who who take the quote-unquote mothers into the clinic and help them get the abortion. Uh, Apparently, uh, one of these people was hassling his child and Mark Howick shoved them and the local prosecutors weren't going to prosecute such a small-time thing. But guess what? Uh, the federal government will. They broke in on Mark Houck like it was Elian Gonzalez, the sequel. And so, of course, the Republican senators asked Garland about that. He somehow said this was the safest course. You're like, huh? Safe for who? 
And then there was also the story of the FBI Richmond office who was discussing how they were going to try to develop intelligence sources inside Catholic churches with the traditional Latin mass. Somehow this is a national security threat. In a nomine patre, spiritus sancto, blah, blah, blah. Speaking Latin, it's the language of uh, subversives. <laughs> now, that's not really my game. I like the Mass in English. This is a very feisty topic now in Catholic circles, certainly here in, in the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. Uh, this is usually something the news media doesn't cover, but in this case, Attorney General Garland said the FBI's Richmond office was all wrong. Uh, Senator Hawley was asking if they're developing sources inside Catholic churches. He said, I don't think so. None of this was considered newsworthy. You know, if you're going to ignore it the first time the story came out, why are you going to you know, cover it when Republican senators ask the attorney general about it? This is one of those rules. I might call it the rolling omission. Once the news media decides they're going to omit it, they keep omitting it and keep omitting it and keep omitting it. That's kind of the way it goes. And then every once in a while, the omission breaks. Oh, the Hunter Biden laptop is now considered real. We'll discuss it for two hours. And then back to your regular news. Uh, this is the part, I actually didn't mention this at the conference. So NPR, National Public Radio, couldn't cover the Senate hearing on Merrick Garland. But then came the weekend, and they were discussing Attorney General Merrick Garland flying to Ukraine to talk about Russian war criminals. Now, I hate Russian war criminals as much as the next American, but notice how, again, this is all about the messaging. We like covering Merrick Garland when he's doing something that sounds heroic. So they discussed it with Scott Simon on Weekend Edition Saturday. That's their morning show on the weekend. And then on Weekend Edition Sunday, there was a segment from Justice Department correspondent Kerry Johnson. Well, it turns out Kerry Johnson flew on the plane to Ukraine with Attorney General Garland and ran a bunch of sound bites from Merrick Garland saying heroic things in Ukraine. And then at the end of the story, she's interviewing him on the plane and he's talking about how the families who've lost loved ones in Ukraine really want the war criminals brought to justice. And that's just like what? It's like Merrick Garland losing family members in the Holocaust. And then we had the soundbite of Merrick Garland choking and tearing up about people his family lost in the Holocaust. So that, again, is maximum advertising. Now, that's, that's a tragic story. You can feel bad about that. But notice, there's not a balance here of NPR listened to him be, or did a story on him being grilled by Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Marsha Blackburn, etc. And then over here... The story on going to Ukraine. No, no, no. They only did the one Garland wanted. Biden wanted. You know, let's remind you. NPR, the same story that couldn't do a single feature on a newscast about the attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh. 
Now that's some rolling omission. You know, these are the same kind of liberals who are fine with, you know, people harassing the Catholic justices. And then they'll try to say the problem in America is the court has a Catholic majority. That would somehow read into it Sonia Sotomayor, devout Catholic, voting for abortion. It is a lot like calling the president of the United States a very devout Catholic. This is what they did in 2020 was part of their campaign messaging. AP just relayed this. Oh, the campaign says he's a very devout Catholic. Deputy political director John McCarthy declared Biden's identity as a very devout Catholic and person of deep faith. And it is, quote, baked into the core messaging and core functions of the campaign. And there's no fact-checking. Joe Biden is like vegetarians endorsing the Big Mac. The devout Catholic who was endorsed for election by the abortion conglomerate Planned Parenthood. Come on. Joe Biden, the devout Catholic who was heartily endorsed by the LGBTQ lobby writ large. And the fact checkers aren't going to check that. But it's in great opposition to Catholic teaching. No, instead we're going to get another so-called devout Catholic and religion teacher, Stephen Colbert, suggesting anybody who opposed the Biden budget is a terrible Christian. Stephen Colbert is a terrible Christian. You know, he, he gets on there and runs people down and suggested that uh, Justice Alito was a turd. Does that sound like something that faithful Christians do? I told the audience at this panel today, I said, I literally go into confession and say, please uh, forgive anything I said that really made people feel bad on Twitter. I try not to. I'm going to be aggressive about bias and stories I don't like, but it's also that question of attacking people, uh, which I, you know, which again, we do, but you know, you want to, you want to feel bad about it and think about it. If, if, if you're accused of being a terrible Christian, you want to consider that and ask yourself and, and meditate on, have I been a terrible Christian today? Joe Biden doesn't do that. He runs around calling himself a devout Catholic, a very devout Catholic. To me, the first thing you do if you're a devout Catholic in reality is not accept the title. I would try to say I'm a practicing Catholic and the Lord will tell me when I'm perfect. Hopefully I'll be made perfect. Practice makes perfect when it comes to going to church, I guess. So I tried to share with them some of the observations we've learned over the years. I used to do an annual religion study here at the MRC called Faith in a Box. So we had Faith in a Box evaluating the news coverage of religion, and we also had Faith in a Box and how the network entertainment shows covered religion. Neither of them did it well. Both of them did it sparingly. The big thing about the news media and religion, especially when it comes to the Catholic Church, their reflexes are very political. There are two categories. There is helpful. The Pope comes out against capital punishment somewhere, against one particular suspect, a convict, somebody who's been convicted of a murder. If the Pope, whether it's Pope John Paul, Pope Francis, are coming out for capital punishment, well, you're a moral authority. Pope Francis 
warns against climate change or the depredations of capitalism, the news media finds him to be a moral authority. The Pope speaks out against abortion. Eh, do we have to cover that? The Pope speaks out against gender theory. Well, that's not helpful at all. As we know, they're just not going to want to cover anybody opposing LGBTQ. Now, sometimes they might show some sympathy for the so-called spiritual but not religious. You know, I mean, you can go back to the Lichter-Rothman-Lichter studies in the 1980s and you discover that the national reporters at that time were not religious people. They seldom have never attended religious services. They don't tend to like organized religion. And no religion is more globally and hierarchically organized as the Catholic Church. You can hold them accountable. You can say there's dreadful clergy sexual abuse in Wisconsin and hold the Vatican responsible because that's the way the church is organized. You can't do one of these things where it's like, well, we're very loosely affiliated here at this church. We have The central office has no authority over the practices of any other church. It's not the way the Catholics are organized. Now, at the time when clergy sexual abuse was especially intense in, in its coverage, and this was about the time we were doing these studies, we'd count the tens and tens of stories on clergy sexual abuse. Uh, they were being exposed by papers like the New York Times and the Boston Globe. You remember, they made movies about the Boston Globe, those heroes. Uh, George Weigel, the columnist and Catholic author, uh, said at the time the New York Times and the Boston Globe were doing the Lord's work. And on some level, that totally makes sense. And that is the terrible spiritual corruption of a clergyman abusing a child is spiritually destructive. And you want to purge that. You want that removed from the ministry. You want to report them to the police. All of that is good. That's the direction the church has gone in. I can tell you firsthand from engaging in church ministries, I have been fingerprinted. Okay, we've, we have taken clergy sexual abuse seriously, not just clergy sexual abuse, but in this case, church volunteers go through the screening. When you're singing in the choir and somebody's under 18, when you're teaching religious ed to eighth graders, you're going to be run through. You're going to get fingerprinted. Or you're going to watch some videotapes about how you know, not to abuse kids. You're going to be, in most situations, in most, most classrooms, you have two adults to hold people accountable. And that's fine. But, you know, I don't think the New York Times and the Boston Globe thought they were doing the Lord's work because, let's face it, they don't really believe in that stuff. I think what they saw it, uh, it was uh, undermining the moral authority of the enemy of the libertine left. These were people who wanted to pass gay marriage in Massachusetts at the time. They were really pushing for Andrew Cuomo to institute abortion on demand in New York State. And who was going to be opposing that? Well, you can certainly bet your bottom dollar the Catholic Church was going to oppose those things. And they wanted to undermine the moral authority of people who would organize for such hard right objectives 
Now, the news media doesn't really get religion. Maybe that's why Terry Mattingly calls his website getreligion.org, because they don't. Terry writes a lot about how they, they tend to leave the religious angles out of stories. In fact, I mentioned this in the, in the panel discussion. Uh, the Associated Press and the New York Times covered the Garland hearing, but both of those august print outlets left out these questions about Catholic churches being vandalized, Mark Houck, the, uh, the uh, Latin Mass uh, supervision, let's put it that way. And one of the things I didn't say that I kind of planned on saying, because when you go, you're kind of going off the cuff a little bit. I had some notes, some of these I'm sharing with you. But it, it, <laughs> there is something to me very sick about the news media who will describe a terrorist leader as an austere religious scholar. Now, that's a term that could actually apply to Joseph Ratzinger, otherwise known as Pope Benedict XVI. He was an austere religious scholar. They like to say uh, he was called God's Rottweiler, which is sort of an insult to the Pope and an insult to God. (laughs) God needs a fierce dog. I mean, that's not very pastoral, is it? You know, you're... you're supposed to be acting in the, uh, in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ a Rottweiler? I don't think so. But these people have no sense of the struggle over, as we discussed, the traditional Latin mass versus the more novus order mass in English. They don't know these terms. They don't get the fight. I mean, the people are so flustered by this, they move to be near the churches they can go to. They try not to be dismissive of those of us who like the Mass in the vernacular, who want to talk like Americans. Uh, They try not to be hostile. I just think it's funny in a sense that the Pope says that the the Latin Mass is divisive, but what he's doing here by trying to suppress it is actually driving the divisiveness in the church. You should just let it be like a menu. Hey, everybody pick your own. They can't really do that. The other thing you could discuss that we've discovered over the years is the way the news media covers entertainment products about religion. Um, One of the ones I really did back in the day was the Da Vinci Code, not just the book, which was, of course, a massive bestseller, but the movies that were then made by Ron Howard and Brian Grazer. And the news media loved them, and they actually did specials. Talk about people who aren't fact-checkers. They're going to sit there and say, well, now we're going to spin a theory for you that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He had sex with Mary Magdalene and had a bloodline going to the Merovingian kings. This is one of those stories of Jesus where you go, how much marijuana did you smoke when you were writing this book? Dan Brown knew what he was doing, right? He was spinning a tale. But he also knew that people would love to beat on the Catholic Church like this. That it was some sort of sinister conspiracy. They like that. Then there's Philip Pullman's books, His Dark Materials. They made that into an HBO series. The Golden Compass. They tried to promote that. That's stiffed at the box office. But again, they love this idea because the evil people 
were called the magisterium. Now that, to uh, non-Catholics, is the teaching office of the Catholic Church writ large. The magisterium is where doctrine is, is decided. So when you, when you basically say the magisterium is the evil empire, this is what you're doing. You're suggesting that the Vatican you know, is a bunch of authoritarian torturers. And, of course, HBO likes that. Then there was, of course, there's other versions of Christian entertainment. The one that was really a contrast to the Da Vinci Code, of course, was the Passion of the Christ. And, of course, at the time, the news media covered that as wildly controversial, and they did a a big interview. Diane Sawyer did an interview with Mel Gibson. But there was all kinds of discussion about how this was basically an anti-Semitic tract. That movie, as a contrast to The Golden Compass, was a massive hit. Despite the fact that it's all in Aramaic with subtitles, it was still a big, big hit. Um, And maybe all the negative media attention had something to do with it as well. Now, you know, now going back again to this whole idea, they don't tend to discuss religious concepts like sin uh, or sacraments or liturgy or theology. There are exceptions. We found this the other day. I was sitting around watching the Today Show with Mrs. Graham, and there it was, Mark Wahlberg. Marky Mark! on the Today Show, talking to Savannah Guthrie about fasting for Lent. I was like, well, good for you, Savannah Guthrie. And she let him talk, and she let him talk a little bit about how he's trying to bring up his kids in the faith. And wow, Um, I went right to uh, our Snapstream system and made video clips, tweeted it out. I know our tier and Rose Mandelberg wrote it up for MRC-TV and Newsbusters. So that happens from time to time. But to sum up, the main thing I had to say to them, the close, is something you've probably heard me say here on this podcast, that my overarching lament of the journalism world that we live in is the media claim that they are the heroic saviors of democracy. They keep democracy from dying in darkness. They run big slogans about how the truth is more important than ever. Maybe not as much now. That was the New York Times slogan during the Trump era. I don't know. Are they still still selling T-shirts and buttons with the truth isn't more important now than ever? I know you can still get your democracy dying in darkness thermos. But... The fact of the matter is these news outlets don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in debate on a lot of subjects, on a growing list of subjects. They're saying you can't have a debate. You can't have a debate about LGBTQ. You can't have a debate about teaching kids that America's a systematically racist mud hole. You can't have a debate about climate change. There are no two sides. There's the right side and the wrong side. There's the love side and the hate side. There isn't right and left. There's right and wrong. Our side is information. Your side is misinformation. Our mission is to add democracy to America. No, it's not. It's for you to say debate is harmful. Debate is triggering. Debate makes people feel victimized. 
you know, remember the way they were when the New York Times had the temerity to publish a column by Senator Tom Cotton saying that in times of great unrest, maybe we could use some soldiers in American cities to stop rioting. This was apparently so triggering that the guy that approved the Tom Cotton op-ed had to go fired. That does not suggest that the New York Times believes in a debate. And this is the problem. And this is what we've tried to tell you. In this era, we are the ones who are bringing democracy. We are the ones that are demanding that there be a debate on contentious issues. We are the ones trying to balance out the aggressive messaging and propaganda of the left. We are bringing democracy to the process. That's what we should all be trying to do. You know, the people who ask questions today, some of them are really pessimistic about how bad it's gotten in our culture. Like, it's gone too far. We can't do much now. The other side is won. And I was sort of like, well, wait. When it comes to something like Roe versus Wade, the other side didn't win. There are times when the other side wins. You know, it's so bad. I did mention this to the crowd. Nicholas Fondacaro sent me a tweet he did right before I went on where Jane Fonda was talking about, you know, is there anything else we can do about abortion? And she said, murder. And Joy Behar is like, ha ha, she's joking. And Jane Fonda made a face like, no, I'm not joking. Yes, Jane Fonda probably would have been approving on some level of the assassination of Brett Kavanaugh. So which side is for a debate? Which side is for letting conservatives speak or letting liberals speak? We don't have any choice in letting liberals speak. They get very upset, though, if you go into a uh, school board meeting and say, we would like to have a point of view, too. I don't think our five-year-olds need books. Showing oral sex cartoons. All right, how's about that? They don't want you to actually look at the books because that's democracy. That's what we need to bring. All right? You, me, everybody who's worried about liberal media bias, it's our job to bring bring democracy and debate to the public square and to the so-called mainstream media, the term that Brent Bozell despises. Don't use it. I don't think he even likes us saying so-called mainstream media. All right, so let's not let them win. Let's not get discouraged. Let's go out there and say we believe in journalism. We believe in truth. We believe in democracy. And we're going to make you try to live up to your own boasting. All right, take that. So if you want to see how we do that, you got to come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening.